I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today I'm talking to Kevin and Noelle Broyles from Atlanta, Georgia. Kevin left his lucrative medical profession at the peak of his career to spend eight years directing a Hope Medical Clinic in La Paz, Bolivia. Noelle shares about how she lost her leg to cancer as a teen after growing up as an orphan. Listen as she talks about planting seeds or see something and do something. Practicing justice or just imitate Christ's example. Finally, the Bible's 7-Eleven store that she goes to to pick up the basis, basics of her faith. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I want to say thanks for listening. I, it's so encouraging when I hear people listening, whether they're in China, whether they're in Papua New Guinea, whether they're in New Zealand or Japan. I mean, it's, I just hear from people from time to time, and it is so upbuilding. And I can't tell you how much it means to me. When I hear from you, I get a text or I get an email and you share, hey, this interview really helped me or inspired me. And it makes it worthwhile. This podcast, uh, I started it three years ago, right before COVID. And there have been times I thought, you know what? I wonder if I want to keep doing this. I mean, it, it takes it takes a little time to put this together. And uh, it's certainly a labor of love. But when I hear the response, it it means a lot to me, super encouraging, and it makes me grateful that I can help other people wherever they may be, whether it's in the States or in Central or South America or in Europe or in Asia. It's, it's pretty amazing. So thank you. There are two things I want to let you know about right now. First of all, the CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference, November 30th through December 3rd in Dallas, Texas. I want you to go. I want you to sign up. We already have right around 100 people registered. And what's so awesome is that's nearly as many as, it, as came to the first conference we ever hosted. We had about 125 people there total. We're praying that this year we'll have over 300 people in attendance. We've got amazing speakers. We've got an amazing program. It's going to be better than ever. And you can register at robskinner.com if you haven't already. So please sign up today. Secondly, talked about this before, but my dream is to plant 10 or more churches by 2030. My fifth church planting uh, is the planting to Flagstaff, Arizona in 2021, and that is doing great. It's growing. Brian and Abby Mackey are doing a great job. My next mission target is Salarita Green Valley in southeastern Arizona. Salarita is one of the top five fastest growing cities in Arizona, and I'm looking for team members and a church leader to plant that church in the fall of 2023. We're looking for families with kids, empty nesters, retirees to plant this beautiful area of Arizona. If you're looking to preach the word while raising your family, or you want to retire with a purpose, or you simply want to be on a growing mission team, contact me at rob at robskinner.com. That's rob at robskinner.com. Kevin and Noel, welcome to the program. 
Thank Great you. Great to be here. Last year, I went out to the campus training program in Marietta, Georgia, that Tom Brown started a long time ago. It was awesome. But one of the best things about it was being able to stay with you guys. You guys hosted Pam and me. And we had such a great time. I mean, I had heard so many things about you from my daughter, Anne, who was in Bolivia, La Paz, Bolivia, for a summer. And she came back raving about both of you guys. And just the opportunity to be able to spend time with you, it was far exceeded my expectations. I mean, it was like, I felt like I discovered a long lost friend, a uh, person who loves to backpack and just all sorts of different things. And, and Noelle, you're just one of the most loving people I've ever met. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on the program and talking to us today. Yeah, it's been fun. We, we felt the same way, Rob. We really enjoyed meeting you and Pam. Totally. And felt like we could just sit for hours and just talk. I know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Those chocolate chip cookies you made were amazing. They're fan absolutely fantastic. I could still remember them. How did you guys become Christians? Interestingly enough, when I was 20 years old, my mother's former middle school math teacher, who also was my junior college math teacher, sent her son, Roy, about a year older than me, older than me to meet me. And uh, I worked at a dry cleaners and he studied the Bible with me and so uh, I became a disciple when I was 20, uh, soon to be 21, and Roy and his family became very dear friends. So I've been a disciple for about 44 years now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll give a different, pers a little bit different perspective when I um, experience. Uh, I was uh, 17 my last month in high school when I was diagnosed with cancer, and I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, but... Uh, when I was far away from home, thousand miles away and in the hospital, this two people and very significantly in my life planted seeds in my life. And it was a young lady named Lori that had the same type of cancer that came by my room and asked me, Noelle, have you ever wondered why we go through some of these things that we do? And I'm like, uh, duh, yeah, you know, and she said, I have two. And she said, I I just wonder if maybe God has allowed me to go through my cancer that because he knew I would meet you and I could encourage you to read your Bible and know how much God loves you. Now, I literally was like, oh, this person is crazy. Mm -hmm. But actually that next week, my sister and I went out and bought Bibles. And that was when I, even though I was raised going to church my whole life, I never, I mean, I wasn't a Christian by any means. Um, that was the first time we started uh, reading the Bible. And it wasn't until a few years later that, um, you know, when I had gotten well and uh, other things happened that somebody reached out to my sister, Jean, uh, just in passing. So another seed planter, Lori planted one and Lori passed away and never knew what happened with us. Um, and another young girl named Anita reached out to my sister, Jean. And we went to church down there in Florida and saw how people really loved the Bible. And my sister responded first, and then I did. And then my third, my second sister, all three of us became Christians. Wow. So that was amazing just okay, because so of centers. That's amazing. So you were in Florida. Kevin, where were you raised? Yeah, I, I was uh, in Tallahassee, Florida as well. Okay, so both Floridians. How'd you guys meet? Um, well, uh, we had a campus retreat, I remember, and my roommate went to high school with Noel, and I said, John, who is that drop dead gorgeous woman over there <laughs> on the other side of the room? 
and he goes, oh, that's Noelle. And uh, <laughs> I had heard that she was an incredibly spiritual, but I could see that she was incredibly beautiful. And when I was transferring from Florida State to the University of Florida for med school, there was a sister in the church at Florida State that was looking to transfer. And she asked me to explore places where she could live in Gainesville with sisters in the church. And Noel had a house with the space. So when I met Noel officially, uh, one of my trim, uh, preliminary trips to Gainesville. So, so that's how we met in 1983, I believe. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you, met, you both met are, at yeah. you met at church. You guys are both Gators. Is that right? Um, no, I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> uh, I, I would go that far. Yes. Total Gator. I'm a Seminole. Uh, yeah. I, I gained Sorry, a medical yeah. degree and a Gator wife. I see. Okay. So undergrad, you went to, to Florida State and then you guys right. were both in University of Florida for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, mm -hmm. now, Noelle, you mentioned your cancer. Would you mind talking about that, how it happened? Sure. Um, sure. Um, well, I uh, was in South Florida, the Fort Lauderdale area. I was a senior in high school. It was my last month of high school before I graduated. And I was super athletic. Um, this is back when not many girls sports existed, but super athletic, super into physical uh, fitness, beauty, you know, so much so that I was really struggling with anorexic things, which I was the only person I knew back then that dealt with that. But um, the last month of high school, I just had such severe pain behind my knee that I was strongly encouraged by my teachers to go get an x-ray and um, found out that uh, indeed it was cancer. It was a malignant bone tumor that um, it was very known to spread quickly and take your life. So um, I lived with my grandparents um, because both of my parents passed away when I was a young girl. Um, and so my grandparents were too elderly to take me all the way from Florida up to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, which was the only only place consulted out of all the cancer institutes that said they would try to save my leg. And my grandparents loved me enough to help us figure out how to get up there. And I was 17 and my sister was 18 and we moved to Boston to live in the hospital. So I had a year of uh, surgeries to try to save my leg. I had many, many months of chemotherapy to try to prevent the tumor from spreading. And after a year of trying to save it, uh, my leg just, it, it wasn't healing. And so we had to have an amputation uh, high above the knee uh, on my right leg. And so that was a year and a half to two of just fighting for my leg and my life but yet the most transformative years of my life because I really learned what was important. I've already mentioned about starting to read the Bible, which of course that was everything, but just to begin to see that what's really valuable in life um, forever impacted my life. How, I mean, how do you cope with a diagnosis where the doctor says, hey, we're gonna have to remove your leg? I mean, how, how do you even absorb that? Well, it, that's a great question. Certainly back in 1976, which seems so, so long ago, um, as it was, as it is, um, but I was the only person at that time that I even knew had cancer. So for, for that's unthinkable now. Now we hardly meet a family that doesn't have someone that has cancer in it, right? But back then, I was like, cancer, what does this mean? What does this mean? Chemotherapy, what in the world is this? You know, 
Um, so I think it was just, I have no idea what we're dealing with. And um, the severity of it was made known by the fact that, you know, I could lose my leg right that that minute, you know, um, but they considered that the survival rate for me was somewhere around the 50-50%. And so I was just like, okay, wow, well, what are we going to do? Let's, let's fight. And um, so it was frightening. It was um, humbling. It was reprioritizing. It was, woe is me. Um, wow, um, I may not live. And um, so the fighter instinct definitely kicked in of uh, if it's meant to be, you know, as long as there's life, there's hope. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight hard. And it was brutal back then. That was when chemotherapy was very new. So you just spent days throwing up and just crazy. Um, but um, but I thank God, you know, I I thank God for that. It, it was a radical chemotherapy. It was a radical surgery. Um, it, I fought to keep my leg for a whole year. I went through many, many surgeries um, to try to keep it. So I was in the hospital constantly, lived in the hospital on and off for a year. And, um, but um, when the physician said, Noel, and I was very close to my physicians, he said, we've done everything we can. I think we've got to take your leg off. It was a, a, a deep realization that, wow, we've done everything that we've can we have done everything that we could possibly do. And that helped a bit with the acceptance of, okay, we're in another chapter now. Right. So, So, I just, I mean, I I bet the temptation, I mean, I just can't imagine facing this. You could have gotten super bitter, angry with God. That person who said, Hey, you should read your Bible. That could have just inflamed your, your anger, but you went a different path. How'd you make that decision? You know, it it is amazing. I I think my greatest defining moments in life, I think actually for all of us are uh, when we are, uh, we ponder the purpose of pain in our lives and it can either help us to be better or bitter and it can help us cling to God or help us or make us run away. I think starting to read the Bible while I was in the hospital, that's all we had. That's all we did. We, I couldn't leave the hospital. I just started to see the goodness of God. I fell in love with Jesus. I met people. Massachusetts General Hospital is a huge complex. It's a dozen buildings connected together. It's like a city in and of itself. And I met people that worked in the elevators, nurses, doctors, cleaners from all backgrounds, all lives. And and I would hear their stories. And I'm like, wow, we all have things that we're learning. We all have hard times. But what we all long for is to have a meaningful life and to encourage each other. I just started seeing life through a different set of glasses. And um, also just the beauty of what, I mean, it sounds crazy to say, but um, the, the good things that come from pain is like you see people, you you connect with people, you feel compassion with people. And um, and, uh, and you've, I, well, I can use this to help somebody else if I mm. can just keep moving forward. Mm. So, um, those, those are some things that I pondered. That's amazing. What was it like, you know, adjusting to not having a leg? How, how, how'd you get around? What, what are you doing now? Mm. Well, um, that, that, that was just good old fashioned hard work. <laughs> it was, 
Oh man, prostheses, particularly, I have a very short residual limb, just about four inches. So um, the more that the the less limb that you have, the more the more difficult it is to function with a prosthesis. So mine definitely provided some challenges, um, and I didn't heal up so well. But I remember just saying, "Okay, if I'm going to be an amputee, I'm going to be the best amputee I can be," and uh, just would put on the leg and walk and practice. Uh, it would be cut. It would be bleeding. It would be. Uh, full of blisters, but I was like, okay, we'll figure this out and just kept practicing and practicing. And then, you know, when I was, I, you know, I, I walked pretty well, you know, um, and walked very strongly because I was strong physically. But then I think when I made certain, you know, my first job, you know, going to work in a department store, okay, how's this going to work? Okay. Going back to college because I hadn't yet been to college. Uh, then going to the University of Florida, and this is before the American Disabilities Act, and um, the, I remember the professor saying, well, hey, can you be a nurse? I mean, can you do this? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm sure going to try. <laughs> so, you know, I'd, I'd have to go in the bathroom a couple times a shift and take off my leg and put powder on and put it back on. I'm like, well, if that's what I have to do. That's what I have to do. But all the while, just I became a nurse that worked in the oncology field, helping people with cancer. So I felt like I was constantly uh, uh, encouraging and helping people of, man, as long as there's life, there's hope. Come on, we're in this together. Wow. And so, um, yeah, that that might be that might be an idea. I just can't, I can't imagine. I mean, when we stayed with you, your, your mother-in-law lives downstairs in the master bedroom. You guys were sleeping upstairs. And I just remember you uh, climbing those stairs. I'm just like, oh my gosh, just what a sacrifice. I mean, just, I mean, you don't use, you don't use uh, crutches or anything like that. You, you get along without it, but I'm just like, it's inspiring. It's amazing. Uh, the most interesting thing when uh, when I remember Noel carrying a, a basket of laundry out to a clothesline on one leg and standing there and putting up all the clothes on one leg and carrying coffee, you know, with one leg up the stairs on crutches, things that most of us are not coordinated enough to do. Noel's got an incredible sense of balance and 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 strength. Well, you know, when one part of your body is weak, the other parts become stronger, right? Mm. Isn't that so true? Mm. Wow. Kevin, what, what led you into medicine? Um, well, it, it in high school, I, I said I wanted to go into medicine because my grades were pretty good. And uh, it sounded good. You know, high school is all about how it sounds. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I really did want to be in a profession where I could help other people. And um, and wasn't exactly sure what that was, but I'd done fairly well in school, and I I figured what I lacked in brains uh, I could make up with discipline and hard work. So when I was in junior college, I took an emergency medical technology course. The the folks that are on the ambulance, and I just fell in love really with the science of medicine as well as just the human connection, the compassion the ability to help people in some of their toughest challenges. And that just fueled me through med school and residency. So that, that was the reason I went into medicine. And I absolutely am so grateful to God to be a, a physician. And I absolutely love what I do every day I go to work. 
What's so I feel very grateful that it's not just a job, mm -hmm. but it's really a vocation. It's kind mm -hmm. of what I really feel like God called me to be. What type of a doctor are you? My uh, my training was in family medicine. Uh, I also got a, a fellowship in academic medicine as well as a master's degree in leadership. But in family medicine, I I, uh, I was in private practice for a while, and then I went into urgent care medicine in 98. So now we're considered to be an urgent care specialist, if you will. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. I, you, yeah. urgent care is everywhere now, but you were there in the early days. How'd you come up with that idea? Like, how'd you get into that? Yeah, so uh, when I finished my residency in 92, I went to work for a, a small family practice that had a walk-in component. So it was kind of a combined urgent care and primary care clinic. I did that for a couple of years and, and learned about the concept of walk-in care. And then I went into private practice uh, in Durham for five years. And in 98, I got a call from an individual at Duke that I had known in my first practice and said that Duke had just acquired all of these primary care practices, family medicine, internal medicine, and the patients had no place to go nights and weekends. And the emergency department was not able to handle the, the, the need. And so they were looking to start an urgent care. They actually called it a dock in the box. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, the first thing is, I'm not even interested if you're going to call it a dock in the box, because that <laughs> seems a little derogatory. Right. But we had the opportunity, saw the need for sure. I mean, primary care couldn't take up, take care of all the urgencies, nights and weekends, and the emergency department couldn't take care of all of it as well. And so I saw the need to be a part of the continuum of care. And we started the first urgent care uh, center in 1998. And now it, it grew into a system. I think they have, I don't know, seven or eight um, urgent care centers now. It's a large system, part of the uh, Duke University uh, Medical Center network, and so that was exciting to just to to start that off grassroots and really see that get blessed by God and really meet a need. And it really is about serving people. I mean, they're just desperate, you know, for care, and they don't know if it's an emergency or if it's not, and just being able to do that. So I actually love urgent care medicine mm. and being able to to do that. Are you still doing that now? I am. I am. I'm still doing that full time, uh, 12 hour shifts. And with COVID, we were seeing 60 patients a day oh in gosh. our 12 hour shifts uh, each. Uh, now things have gotten a little bit better. And I'm actually going to go part time in July so I can uh, do more things uh, other than just be in the urgent care. Okay. So let's go back in time. Early 80s, you guys met at the University of Florida. You were a student. Kevin, you're a grad student. Um, can you give us just an overview of your career? Like, give us a the thirty thousand foot view of of your career. Where where have you guys been since that time? So we both uh, all graduated from University of Florida in, in nursing. Me and medicine. We got married in 1986, the week after I graduated from medical school, and then we moved the week after we got back. Uh, up to North Carolina. And so both Noel and I went to North Carolina. Noel worked, yeah, so I went to work at Duke uh, as a resident. I do my training in family medicine. And Noel was a pediatric uh, oncology nurse at Duke. Is that right? 
Yeah, well, yeah, it's because I had a few roles. Yeah, I, I worked in pure pediatrics and then um, actually was able to work with the hospital physicians to create a role for me to work specifically with just the amputee patients at Duke Hospital. So Whoa. I could really focus there. So that was really great. I love that. That wasn't work at all. I, I created the job, so it was so fun. Um, but um, I retired from that when my children were a couple years old because having grown up, not having parents growing up, um, I knew that I could always be a volunteer with cancer patients and amputees, people that have amputations. But um, for me personally, I was, uh, I really wanted to be at home to raise the kids and we could afford that financially, which enabled me to be a volunteer. So. And so Noelle actually became a nurse practitioner, if you will, before the the profession of nurse practitioner existed. She kind of created that role at oh, Duke. nurse clinician. Well, that's what they call it, but yeah. it was the same. And uh, I uh, did my residency at Duke, and then I uh, really loved mentoring and teaching. And I did a one-year fellowship in academic medicine. And uh, um, then the funny thing was they offered me a job, and I said, I'll never work for Duke. Um, <laughs> and went into private practice and, you know, urgent care, like I said, and then came back to Duke in 98 and was there until 2011. I got a master's degree. And so I was able not only to work with urgent care, but I became the associate chief medical officer of the primary care division. So I had an opportunity to work with those primary care practices that we were serving as well. And then, uh, and then we went to Bolivia. So Okay, so and how long were you in Bolivia for? Yeah, so uh, so Bolivia was interesting. Um, yeah, how we how we got there um, is that I had been at Duke long enough that I met this rule uh, of early retirement, and our daughter was graduating from high school, our youngest, and was thinking about doing a gap year, and we had gone overseas with Hope, and. Um, so to Kenya. And so when I realized I could retire early, I thought if there's ever a time in my life to get out of the boat, walk on some water, do something that's uh, a little scary, uh, go overseas, do something, now's it. And uh, we went and talked with Hope and they said, well, there's nothing in Africa, which we were disappointed because we loved Africa, but we are thinking about um, doing a pilot project in Bolivia. And so to answer your question, we wound up being in Bolivia. We were only going to be there for a year or two. We wound up being there for eight years. Wow. Okay. So you're there for, until 2019 and then you came back to right. Georgia. Yeah, we, we came to Georgia and then I started working uh, in an administrative position as well as an urgent care position for the first year and now strictly just clinical and urgent care with a health system here in Atlanta. Okay. And Noel is full-time hope uh director of the local chapter here and working uh, in our communities you could have gone anywhere why did you choose to go to georgia rather than back to north carolina or even florida um kids our youngest daughter is here with her husband they lead the youth and family ministry at the north river church and then our other daughter candace uh, single now, soon to be married, uh, is in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we, it just seemed like that to be here with Nick and Bree, the promise of grandkids was on the horizon. <laughs> and uh, 
we uh, we wound up coming to Atlanta. That's awesome. Okay, so let's let's go and talk a little bit about Bolivia. This is really where um, I first heard about you guys. Mm. Why'd you go there? And like, what 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 were you doing there? Can you talk a little bit about your mission? Um. Well, I guess either one of us, maybe I could respond first. I do think it's really fun, Rob, just to add that Kevin didn't emphasize it quite so much, but we had been super involved with Nairobi, Kenya and East Africa for years. So when we were thinking about moving, selling our home in, in North Carolina and moving and living overseas and um, being able to devote devote full-time effort um, and support ourselves, really, um, to be able to devote effort to um, helping those who are in need, um, poverty, um, marginalized populations. We really thought we were going to go to Kenya because that was so logical. Like, duh, we're so close to everybody there. We are very close to everybody in the program there, helped to start a program there um, for kids, uh, um, you know, kids sponsorship program in Kenya. But it's funny that those doors, it's just like Act 16, where Paul and Silas were going to go this way, but the spirit wouldn't let them go. So they were going to go this way, but the spirit wouldn't let them. We were like, this is so weird that it's not working out to go to Kenya. And then right at that time is when one of the hope leaders said, well, what do you guys think about going to Bolivia? To which we both were like, oh man, we don't speak Spanish. Like <laughs> I know a few words, Kevin. I was like, uh, so can you tell me where in Europe Bolivia is? <laughs> so, I'm sure that fostered a lot of uh, confidence in our ability to go to South America. <laughs> but I think that um, to answer and I'll end here and Kevin, you can continue that. But I think we both, um, not only just growing older as disciples, as in and falling more in love with Jesus is what I mean, and just seeing how Jesus walked with people and he always walked with the hurting. We just were like, you know what, we 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 want to give everything that we have, but we also know that we're going to learn more than we've ever learned in our lives. And um, so when the call to Bolivia came, our, our I think our heart was just kind of that first Peter four of just use, wanting to use whatever gifts that we had to be able to help and serve and encourage. And um, so that's how we got to Bolivia. And it was, it was, it was amazing how all that pulled mm -hmm. together, but Kevin can comment yeah. on that. Yeah. I, I, for me, I, I, you know, Rob, by nature, I am not a risk taker. I mean, people who go into medicine tend to be pretty calculated folks right. and sure. Uh, you know, everything's kind of laid out for you. So not a lot of thought there. You just need to be willing to work hard. Um, but I I had read a book um, that says, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. And I also just had this nagging feeling while I was at Duke my last years there that my career was becoming more important that, to me than God was. And, and, and when I was converted and, uh, you know, way back when in 79, I wanted to have and continue to have that attitude of really being willing to go anywhere and do anything for God. And, um, and I just felt like I was being called. And when I found out I could retire early, that was a sign, if you will. And, um, and then um, it's interesting. I was very much like Gideon. 
uh, I had a three-page Excel spreadsheet with questions on it about <laughs> moving to Bolivia that I felt needed to get answered uh, for me to feel comfortable about moving to Bolivia. This is the calculated guy that I am. And not only did all three of those pages get answered, but a lot of miracles happened where our house sold almost before it went on the market when the market was nine months of selling. Duke made a special dispensation to allow me to retire with certain benefits that I would have lost otherwise that uh, meant a lot, enabled us to go to Bolivia and be self-supporting for a year. And um, so I went from being a Gideon with a lot of questions to where I felt like now I'm a Jonah, mm -hmm. that if I don't go to Bolivia, um, I'm going to get swallowed up by a whale or something. But uh, our first trip to Bolivia was just, it was amazing. Um, I wanted to say breathtaking because where we lived in Bolivia was at 13,000 feet. It's twice the height of Denver. So it literally is breathtaking, <laughs> but the country's breathtaking and the altitude's breathtaking, the, 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 the people are breathtaking, the opportunities are breathtaking. And after that exploratory trip going to Bolivia, I mean, we were all in tears because we felt like, and this is so out of my element, Rob, but we felt like that this would be a place we could go and use everything that God had given us, not only being in the kingdom for many years and knowing about parenting and 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 uh marriage and and just the bible and leading the church and bible studies and things like that but our my medical work noel's uh love for the social work and um and just even our own life experiences growing up seeing people in bolivia having those same life experiences and being able to relate to that um the the, the little church that was there we can talk about in a minute but um just needed encouragement and hope and and so we literally got on the plane in tears and came back to the states and sold the house packed up everything put stuff in storage gave away stuff and left the country <laughs> in record time wow okay i want to talk a little bit about this i think there are a lot of people that want to do great things for god they want to make this life count but it's scary I mean, it's, it's, it's a sacrifice and whether you're in your fifties, like you were, or whether you're, you know, 20, 27 or, or 17, and you're thinking, I really want to, you know, go overseas or I want to do this or that it's, it can be paralyzing. And I think, you know, for a person in their fifties, I go, you're, you're a doctor. Yeah. You could retire early at the same time. You could just stash the cash big time had you chosen to stay what where you were doing. I mean, you just could basically pile up a, a really, really super nice, comfortable lifestyle for yourself, but you chose not to do that. How do you overcome the fear? How do you get the guts enough to pull the trigger and listen to your best instincts, the spirit, spirit working inside of you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, most everyone would say that's just ridiculous. Why are you going to leave the country in your uh, what's considered the peak of your career? Exactly. Your top, top money making years. You know, I was at a really high, uh, you know, level at Duke and a good salary and everything. And they said, that's just crazy. This is where you should be stashing it away. What's interesting, Rob, just as an aside, is that God has more than abundantly blessed us since we came back to the States and anything that we would have 
had we have more, I believe, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. But with that is this eight years of an amazing experience. But, um, you know, for me, I was just really honest with God. I just said, you know, I I feel like I need to get out of my element. And I that that desire is stronger than holding on to what's comfortable or even logical. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to grow in trusting God. There's no better way to grow in trusting God than go to a country where you don't speak the language <laughs> and you've just sold, you've just quit your great job <laughs> and you just sold all your possessions and, uh, and you're there. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and so I, I think it was that, and I think it was God just, just reassuring me. I mean, honestly, I'm not kidding about the three page list, but he just kept reassuring me. This is my will for you. And, it was, and I told God, God, you know, I'm a hard-headed guy. I just need you to hit me over the head with it. And when certain things happen, like the special dispensation at Duke, the selling of the house, the three-page list being done, and then it goes on and on and on, um, I was like, it's obvious to me this is what God wants us to do. But I think we've got to be willing to ask the question and lay it out. You know, God, what do you want me to do? And then explore. And, and God doesn't mind your questions. He doesn't mind the three-page list. He's like, I can handle that. That's easy. <laughs> um, you know, I, and I just need you to have a willingness to go. And we did. Rob, I was definitely intimidated, extremely intimidated. In medicine, we're used to being kind of in control. Right. And, uh, and I definitely did not feel like I was in control. But I look at that, and when you look at, in the Bible, you know, where Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, you know, you know, I want to walk on water. He says, get out of the boat. Mm -hmm. Well, it, I felt that way by getting out of the boat of the comfort and the and the certainty of my career and and all of that and everything that we had there in Chapel Hill. We met Jesus on the other side and we got a chance to walk on water, not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. Wow. And we got a chance to do something that that was transformative, not only for us, but for many people. Mm. And uh, so it's like what motivated was the excitement of just getting out of the boat and seeing what God has in store. Well, wow. know well, you. Well, I wasn't in a career. Um, so I have kind of a, a complimentary perspective, I think. Um, but I was walking alongside of people, and um, I think sometimes uh, life is about the steps, it's about seeds, it's about stitches, it's about the small steps forward. And I think that, you know, the, one of the greatest things that God gives us is the privilege to walk toward needs, mm -hmm. to walk toward people that are hurting, not walk away, but walk towards. And we can do that right where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, taking a step to plant a seed. Uh, it's just something I just believe so deeply that seed, you see people and you DS, you do something. That's <laughs> something that we can do every day where we are. You see people, you do something. And, you know, I think that when we have that walk toward privilege in our hearts, which is totally is Jesus, he walked toward people that were hurting. He didn't walk away. He he walked toward because then there's some things that your eyes cannot ever unsee. There's some things that your heart can never unfeel because of walking with people that are hurting. 
And again, we can do that where we are. Um, we should do that where we are. <laughs> we should do that every day. That's part of walking like Jesus. But um, I was just going to say, connecting that to going uh, someplace far away, that's the everyday walk of Jesus, no matter where you live. If you live in Atlanta, or if you live in California, or if you live in Kenya, or you live in, you know, Russia, or you live in South America, is the walk of Jesus is to, you know, to love people. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes it helps to take a short trip or, you know, to go visit someplace and purposely walk toward that, not necessarily to move there, but to walk there. And um, and then your head starts thinking where your feet are planted. Your heart starts feeling where your feet are planted. Um, and it's just because you took that step of God, show me. Mm. So that's just. Okay, so that's question. that's great advice right there. So you say, you know, plant seeds. I love that see something, do something. And so seeds, that's awesome. So take a, take some step, do something, even if it's super small, but try to move in that direction. And then secondly, go there, visit. It doesn't have, you don't have to, to, um, sell the house right off the bat, but just at least investigate, go there and see. And what you shared, Kevin, is that you went there and it really moved you once you went there and, and went on a scouting trip. So that's great advice for a person who's thinking about doing something larger for God. Yeah, I think, Rob, had we not gone to Africa for little two-week trips, we had done that several times, just being going overseas and and uh, is can be intimidating and Africa can be intimidating, if you will. But we had done that. And I think had we not done those small things, we uh, wouldn't have been in a place for God to say, hey, I want you to go move yeah. and be there. That's awesome. OK, so what are some of the things that you saw? What are some of your best memories from that time in Bolivia? Mm. I. I feel like that if I was to summarize um, our experience in Bolivia in the eight years we were there, it was about connecting and serving. And what I mean about that is that we opened a medical clinic and we connected the medical community to highly trained specialists that we invited to come over and teach. Uh, we provided high quality medicine in the neighborhood we lived. We trained uh, young docs. Uh, Bolivian docs eager to further their training in the United States. And there are five in the United States now that we train that are now in the U.S. And we made these connections with healthcare. And so from a medical point of view, with our medical education, I worked with the U.S. Embassy there. Uh, and we had uh, medical brigades down in the Amazon and the jungle, which was just amazing. Uh, and, um, you know, and so with the medical, God allowed me to use my medical training, my love for teaching um, in a great way to just really help the community and help the future doctors who would go overseas. And that allowed us to create the foundation, which is what Noelle uh, and her team did. And uh, Noelle can talk about that. And then, um, and just watching the church grow, uh, you've got a couple here that have been Christians for over, you know, 30 years, and there's so much we can give to the church. And the church was about 25. We were about 100 when we left. Wow. And, uh, you know, and we brought folks from all over the world because we were working with Hope for volunteer corps and medical things from all over the world. And the church saw we're part of a, of a family that goes all over the world 
and it just gave them this vision of what we are, what the church was and what it was. And we began to connect them to people all over the world. And we had several Bolivians come to the United States. Um, and then, you know, you talked about hiking and love for outdoors. Bolivia is one of the most naturally beautiful places in the whole world. It's breathtaking. And, uh, and, and I enjoyed so much being out and being able to explore the beauty of that incredible God, uh, God made country. Mm. And, uh, but Noel can tell you about the foundation. That was an incredible work. Well, I, I think your question was, what were some of our most memorable memories, mm -hmm. right? Like what, what is forever a part of our heart? And, um, and so yes, social programs, yes. But I think even um, more specific, it was the every, it was the people <laughs> just, I could keep you on this podcast for 10 hours straight telling you about the people that took my breath away. Um, may, they may not eat, they may be uh, 10 people living in one room with no electricity, no running water, but the, through the poverty, their character, their resilience, their courage, their, that nothing was easy for those who are materially poor. I think of the fact that the known abuse rate of children was in 70%. So I just assumed every child that I was with was abused, which completely changed my perspective of how I see people. Do I, do I look for their stories? And so I think the people um, changed my life. And, um, and then I think the volunteers, that's people too, but I, I think we had about 800 people come during the years that we were there from across all over the country, mostly the United States, um, some from the Latin American countries and others from Europe. But what it was, was that it, it further expressed or um, embedded in my heart that life is about relationships mm -hmm. and um, we're created in God's image. God wanted relationships and just the beauty of knowing people and connecting them and knowing they're all connected now just makes my heart just so smile. Mm -hmm. Like they're all connected, all these people, they keep up with each other and just the volunteers, how their lives were transformed because they were able to walk like Jesus with the most hurting of hurting and not be overwhelmed, but to plant seeds, you know, see people do something and know that God in his time will make that grow, that we get to live like Jesus. Um, but yet they walked away going, oh, I've gained far more than I have mm -hmm. given. And they go home changed walking like Jesus in, in their everyday life. Um, and that I think the convictions from those years there are immovable from my heart. They're, they're unchangeable. And, and both mainly the convictions are, it's enough to be like Jesus. Mm. It's just enough. And Jesus was surrounded by crowds and chaos, but he always saw the one. Mm. And um, and we can, you know, you can't feed 500 people, then you can feed the one right next to you. If you can't smile and hug a thousand people, you can hug the one right in front of you. If you can't, you know, you, you know, you can't change the whole world, but you can change somebody's world next, you know, somebody's world somewhere. And it's usually the person right next to you that God has brought you to, but so many convictions about that, but the social programs, um, that were started, which were not easy because we're like, okay, here we are. But it, we started with the heart of, you know what, we're here to build uh, trust. We're here to lift up your arms. How can we best help? What can we do? And never worried about who gets credit for anything, but we're here to help you, support you. 
And, you know, now what, 10 years plus later, those very relationships of trust with community, with community partners, with orphanages, with hospitals, with the embassies, with every, those, those things are just, those relationships are so strong that now the social programs on the ground are, are just able to um, just to fly because there's trust, you know, when there's trust, you can fly. So I would say, um, yeah, there, there's just too many things actually. Um, but if I had to put them all there, I guess I would say the individual people, <laughs> all the volunteers and the convictions that it's enough to be like Jesus and it's amazing. Okay. My daughter, Anne went down for a summer and spent time with you guys. And I remember her calling back and saying, you know, oh, it's amazing down here. And they, and she said, mom and dad, Noel is incredibly loving. She, I've never met someone quite like her. She, she holds my hand. She'll, she'll hold my face in her hands and just stare into my eyes and give me, give me hugs. And she's like, I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like this. You have a, an extremely loving and affectionate quality about you, Noel. How'd you develop that? Where'd it come from? Well, the hero of anything good is Jesus. And let me start there and actually finish there. But that is true. Is that uh, Jesus takes my breath away the way that he saw people and loved them. And um, he just, I feel like I have Jesus moments in my heart for every person that I'm around. Uh, I've got a snapshot of Jesus that comes to my heart. But I think, you know, kind of on a practical, like some things is I think, you know, um, it is the hardships, honestly, and the difficult things in my life that I think um, moved my heart to see people through a different set of eyes. When I was an orphan, um, both my parents died. My mom died when I was seven. My dad died when I was nine. I was the only orphan that I knew and I remember just feeling so different and nobody to come to school with you. And I just remember when I saw orphans after that, it's like, I see you, I get you, I'm with you. I think I was the first person I ever knew that had cancer. So therefore I'm like, see you, I get you, you know, um, and, and so many other, you know, different experiences. But I, I remember even just being in the hospital when I was a very worldly teenager, completely consumed with my hair and my physical body and my stature. And, you know, I was totally all about that. And when you don't have your hair and you don't have the perfect body that you had a few months ago, you just start looking at, wait a minute, what is it about people that makes them beautiful? Mm -hmm. And um, meeting people from different cultures and from Haiti, from Africa, from everywhere, and just um, seeing, seeing their qualities admiring them, expressing value, like you matter. And I, you know, those kind of things are really the heartbeat of affection. Affection can be touch, but it's really, it's really their eyes. It's, it's looking in their eyes. It's seeing them and helping them to realize how valuable they are with your words, with your, with your time. And even just knowing people's names, that's affection. It's like, Mm. I'll never forget just when we first moved here too, it's just constantly God's always teaching. There was a young man that became a Christian in the campus ministry and he's on the spectrum of 
some type of autism and said hello to him at church and I called him by his name and he came up to me and goes, you remember my name? Mm. You remember my name? And I was like, oh my gosh. So I think it's, I think that's the heart of just the hard times often make you walk toward people, help you to see them. And in seeing them, you love them. And in loving them, you just feel what God created relationships all about. You know, I don't know. That, that That's amazing. What, what you mentioned working in a cancer ward, specifically with amputees. What, I mean, what's that like when you are there and you have lost your own leg? I mean, how do, how do, what's the response from people? Hmm. Well, because I do walk with a limp, um, it didn't matter which room I walked into, whether the patient was old, cancer, young, pediatrics, whatever, people would always say, well, why do you limp? Oh, did you hurt yourself? And I always just use that moment to connect of, no, it's because I actually walk with an artificial leg and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I asked them like, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, it's great. I mean, I may walk a little funny, but I'm alive and I'm doing well. And so that right there taught me right there that mm. you can use whatever it is to bring the walls down. It, it's amazing how that is. But with people with um, people who were battling cancer, to see someone, even if I might be very different from them, I might be a different age, I might be a different racial background, I might be, um, you know, whatever, you know, I might be old and they might be young or they might be old and I might be young, but to see somebody that's living and uh, functioning and pursuing life dreams gives people hope. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes 9 where he says, wherever there's life, there's hope, wherever, you know, wherever there is. And, um, um, and so I think that it was a constant joy to be able to say our battle will not be the same you and I understand and you're not alone and um that gives people hope to not be alone is so powerful it must and have just inspired people I mean just just to go okay this person gets me they they literally get me mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, isn't that what we all long is mm-hmm. we long for is we lo- we long to be seen we mm-hmm. long to be loved we long to matter and we long to be, we long to belong so, um, you know, I think that's why when we do go through hard times, what is that phrase by Viktor Frankl, right? He says, suffering ceases to be suffering when it finds its meaning, mm-hmm. is that when you go through hard times, but you find a meaningful purpose that it, your pain can actually be a comfort to others, like Second Corinthians 1 says that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. It's just all of a sudden life takes on a richness of, oh, it's it's not about pain-free living. It's about meaningful living. And, um, so yeah. Okay. So you guys were in Bolivia for eight years. You've had 800 people come through. You're raising up local doctors. They're going to the States to get training. You've got like a first world clinic in a third world country. Why'd you come back? Uh, well, it, it was time. <laughs> um, you know, we really loved being there and we had, 
we truly wanted as much as possible and God blessed us and really feeling like this is where we belonged. And, uh, but the country itself was going through a, a lot of political challenges and uh, there was going to be an election and it was going to be difficult. And the embassy was warning us. The, uh, the medical clinic was doing great, except it just wasn't able to fulfill its purpose because it's very, very difficult in Bolivia to have a business, uh, an American-based American business, some of the rules, regulations, laws, and things. Yeah. It was very difficult. And Hope Worldwide had also decided that they wanted to switch away from medical care, um, uh, focus to more volunteer opportunities and uh, smaller medical brigades, but not uh, supporting clinics and hospitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, so and a so, shift, a yeah, shift. a paradigm shift with hope, nothing bad, mm -hmm. but they had said, you know, we, we really feel like that because of the political situation, because of, um, you know, our change in focus that we'd like for you to close the clinic. And, um, uh, while that was difficult, we see the wisdom in that. And we didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic, uh, you know, right after that. And we didn't know how um, challenging the, the political situation would be, but it was quite challenging and, and God really spared us a lot. And then, um, my spared us a lot as far as losing, losing, losing money with the clinic and yeah, yeah. And just, um, yeah, it would have been uh, really disastrous from a business point of view. And so God really spared us. We were able to sell the clinic and all the things to, to support the now foundation that still exists. Um, and uh, the the other part of this was family. Uh, we had been away from our children for eight years, and you know our youngest daughter was married. There was a promise of a grandchild in the near future. My mother was um, getting to the point where she couldn't live independently, um, uh, and lives with us now. And we knew that that was going to happen, and indeed it happened a couple of years after we moved back. And so it was time, family wise, to come back as well. Wow! And okay. we had. Um, the foundation was very successful and doing very well. And we knew that that was the seed that God wanted us to plant long term. And the church was doing well. And I think also just a deep conviction, too, that um, life is about seasons and chapters and um, that uh, and you do only have one family. And we had been apart from our family for eight years. And I've already mentioned about my conviction about growing up an orphan myself right so um but i think also that we wanted bolivians to lead bolivian work and they were capable to do that uh far more capable and they have just catapulted forward through covid through the political coup through uh, death and dying uh, that had happened uh, in Bolivia with the COVID, um, they were able to just uh, honestly continue giving, loving, and becoming a treasured social program foundation uh, within Bolivia. Indeed, they won an award from the United Nations for just their work of just how they utilize their volunteers, and they are just growing. And, you know, there's a time for everything. And so wow. you, you came back, you reached out to your mom. I heard there's some good, good news, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I guess, uh, lots of good news, but, um, one is, is that, um, 
mom didn't know she had a really bad cardiac condition until we had been together for a while and I realized she was having um, angina and she wound up having emergency uh, uh, cardiothoracic surgery and her life was saved because of that. And um, and then mom was also baptized at the ripe old age of 85 Five. Wow. in the swimming pool of one of our dear brothers here. And uh, <laughs> But it just showed her heart and her love for God and that you're never too old. And so, yeah, so a lot of great news uh, with, with mom. That's really inspiring. Now, let's talk a little bit about your hobbies. You mentioned backpacking. What, what do you got planned? What, what are your, your upcoming yeah. hikes? So, uh, yeah, so um, I started hiking as an adult. Uh, I was had the privilege of being a part of Sam Lang's Mighty Men of God group that he started <laughs> in Triangle. It's when he was writing the book and I yep. had the privilege of being one of those guys. And one of the encouragements okay, was, okay, let me, men, let me interrupt you real quick. Please. Is it true that you guys woke up and met at 5 a.m. in the morning? Uh, 530. 530. <laughs> uh, we, we all, we all got a letter from Sam saying, I'm inviting you to be a part of a group that will change your life. And we will meet at 530 promptly on Saturdays. Uh, and the inconvenient hour is chosen by design. <laughs> and if you wanted it, you would be there. And believe me, we were not late. <laughs> it was an incredible transformative group because Sam was really striving to help many of us who grew up with a without a father figure like myself uh, to become men, men of God. And so hiking was part of that. He wanted us to get out. So I did my first hike, I think age 40 something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fell in love with the Appalachian Trail, and I've had the opportunity to do section hiking. So I've accomplished about 700 miles. Wow. And uh, it's now been 10 years since I've been hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, and I'm going out uh, next week, going to do a 30-mile trek uh, from the beginning of the Appalachian Trail, Springer, up to uh, Neal's Gap, right after Blood Mountain. So with some brothers, a band of brothers, we're going to do a, a three-day, 30-mile hike. And I just love being out like that. And so it, uh, it's it's just a time to connect to God and to yourself, you know. And uh, you're a hiker, so you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I just had an awesome hike on Aravipa Arav Canyon, which was amazing. I think I shared about it on a previous episode, but it was a blast. I mean, it was um, it, this, the, it's 10 miles in, 10 miles out. And it was beautiful just going through the water and just steep, steep canyons. Now the Appalachian trail, tell me, tell me just, to, I don't want to get too far off track here, but yeah. two things I've heard rains a lot and mosquitoes. Yeah. So it really depends on what season, but it's called the long green tunnel <laughs> and, uh, it's very wooded for most of the whole way. And, uh, and sometimes you don't really see a Vista, you see a green tunnel and, uh, there are millions of people that are on the trail every year. And so it's, uh, it's grooved into the mountainside. Um, and so in Georgia where it starts in the summertime, it is hot and humid mosquitoes and bears. And then in New Hampshire in the fall and winter, it's freezing and dangerous to your health if you're not prepared. So it has all the adventure all along the way. Mm. But it, it's incredible. It really is. But it is definitely a place where you get in touch with God and nature and the beauty that God created. It's 2,200 miles long. And so 
plenty of time to to see the vistas and and enjoy just being out. I'd love to come visit and do a section with you. That would be awesome. That would love be for great. you to do that. But I've heard though that people get they they get lost or they go off the trail and have died, you know, not not too far off trail, but literally can't find their way back to the trail. It's it's so so wooded. Yeah. Uh, so in New Hampshire, uh, Mount Washington, the trail goes right near Mount Washington. That is probably one of the most perilous parts of the trail because the weather can change in a matter of hours. You can feel like it's springtime, summertime, or fall, and next thing you know, there's a snowfall. Mm-hmm. Winter, you can't see the landmarks, and you can uh, you can die of hypothermia. They even have a book they wrote called "Not Without Peril" about that part of the trail. But then on the other side. The incredible vistas are breathtaking, Mm. literally breathtaking. So like many things in life, the things we've been talking about during this podcast, um, the, the risk, uh, is, is worth the reward. That's right. I mean, I got into backpacking. I mean, just because I thought, Hey, this, this being like Jesus, Jesus took, took his disciple first. He walked everywhere and he took people up on the mountains. He took people on retreat and I go, what a great experience. You get, get time to talk. And for guys, it's just awesome. I mean, just, I mean, I took my two campus interns, um, Kevin and Cole out for two nights and three days. I mean, it was bonded us for life. I mean, we were loving it. So final question, what advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? Go ahead, Noel. I have my answer. You want to go first? Well, all right. I, I think I think mine's pretty simple, Rob. Um, and I and I appreciate the question because I think we should think about that, you know, in our lives. Sometimes we're so busy that we don't think about what what could I do or should I do to get the most out of this life God's given us. It's precious. It really right. is. Exactly. Um I think one is we need to realize that we've got a whole lot more to give than we think we do. And I think that that concept of getting out of the boat, that was very real for me. Being willing to get out of our comfort zone and out of what is familiar and what is safe and what is secure to get out of the boat. Because the truth is Jesus is on the other side of that boat and the miracles like Peter walking on water or on the other side of that boat. It's not in the boat, it's out of the boat. And so the willingness to take on risks and to grow in trust and allow God to to put you in a situation where you just will grow in your faith and your trust. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, to me, that that is the lesson there, I think, is just the willingness to let God uh, let you go. Mm, that's awesome. Well... I would say, um, I would say the first question comes to mind is, well, who was the most impactful person that ever lived? And obviously that's Jesus. He's still changing our lives today, 2000 years later. And so then it's, what's my most encouraging advice is it's enough to be like Jesus. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, Jesus sent the disciples out after they'd been with him for a while and they'd heard the Sermon on the Mount and they'd been with him healing people, helping people. He sends them out in Matthew 10 
and okay, don't take any food, don't take any clothes, don't take any of this. You don't even know where you're going to stay. And you know that he goes, it's just enough to be like me. And I, that is profound. Mm. And yet that means everybody can do it. And I think that um, I have my go-tos that I'm unshakable, unshakable. Uh, in, I don't know about on the Western side of the United States, but on the Eastern side, there's this store that was created, you know, 50, 60 years ago called 7-Eleven. I don't know. Have you ever heard of those, Rob? Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, well, the reason I say that is, is if there's one glimpse of Jesus that makes me want to be like him more than anything in the world, it's I go to Luke chapter seven, verse 11, and it's my run in quickly to get a glimpse of Jesus. And then I run out of those scriptures and I just can't wait to be like him. Mm. And that scripture talks about how Jesus was surrounded by crowds himself. And as he's walking, he sees a widow coming and she is surrounded by crowds. And yet he's surrounded by crowds. She's surrounded by crowds, but he looks, he sees her. He goes up to her. He speaks to her. He touches her. He brings back life. And the response of everybody is, Oh my goodness. They were filled with awe. God has come to help his people. And, um, I just feel like, um, the, I am, when we are like Jesus, we're living the most impactful life. Wow. And so my encouragement to every young disciple, every old, old as dirt disciple, I'm encouraging even myself is I, is my practice to read a gospel chapter every day based on the date. Today's the 20th. Today I read Matthew 20. I, I I read many other things, but I always read the gospel of the day because I wake up knowing I get to be with him. And we become like who we listen to. We become like who we spend time with. And the disciples spent three years with Jesus. I've been able to read my Bible for over 40. So that's, oh my goodness. And so anyway, I think that's it. Even with today's challenges, I'm, I'm, I don't stick my head in the sand and be like, oh, I don't want to deal with all the current issues that are going on. No, it's a walk toward privilege, because when you walk toward like Jesus and you're determined to love, uh, my other little acronym is JUSTICE, J-U-S-T-I-C-E, just I-C-E, imitate Christ's example, and you will bring justice that the world is crying for. So anyway, I have... Uh, just a gazillion scriptures, but I know we don't have time for that. And Kevin's poking me saying, quiet, woman, quiet, too much. That, no, that's so. that's fantastic. I love these. Justice, just imitate Christ's example. I mean, Absolutely. how about 7-Eleven? I mean, that's awesome. It makes it makes life so simple, doesn't it? You just think about it. Just, just go in real quick, take a look at Jesus' example, his care. And I love how you said that, you know, wherever you live in the world, whether you're in the affluent areas of the world or in the developing areas, you can still have a very powerful, meaningful, and loving life because Absolutely. you can be like Jesus. I mean, it's, it's Jesus said, it's not the abundance of, of possessions that makes a life. And you guys have clearly shown that in your example and your sacrifice. So thank you so much for this time. I, how, if anyone wanted to reach you, ask questions, some follow-up questions. How could they reach you? Yeah, uh, they could text us, uh, you know, or text they or email. or email us. And uh, so my phone number is 919-564-9515. Noelle's phone number is 919-699-8745. 
My email address is wkbroils at gmail.com. And Noelle's email address is nfbroils at yahoo.com. Yahoo. Okay, great. I'll go ahead and include those in the show notes if that's okay with you. Yeah. Sure. Love you guys. Thank, thank you so much. Love you, Love you Rob. Thanks. Big hugs to Pam. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First, hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about the program. Secondly, read and review one of my books, either How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find them on Amazon.com or IPI Books. Thirdly, support the program financially by going to the TucsonChurchOfChrist.org website and hit the Donate tab. Now, Tucson is spelled T-U-C-S-O-N, ChurchOfChrist.org. Select the General Fund, and your tax-deductible gift will help me multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no-regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.